Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, episode 26. This will be a somewhat shorter episode, as my wife and I just got back from our anniversary vacation. I have had a somewhat rough week at work, and am facing a pretty rough upcoming couple of weeks. In this episode, we have one story by Ambrose Bierce and one story by H.P. Lovecraft. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce... 1842 to 1913, was an American short story writer, journalist, poet, and Civil War veteran. Bierce's book, The Devil's Dictionary, was named as one of the 100 greatest masterpieces of American literature by the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration. His story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, has been described as one of the most famous and frequently anthologized stories in American literature and his book, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, also published as In the Midst of Life, was named by the Grolier Club as one of the 100 most influential American books printed before 1900. A prolific and versatile writer, Bierce was regarded as one of the most influential journalists in the United States, and as a pioneering writer of realist fiction. For his horror writing, Michael Deirda ranked him alongside Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. His war stories influenced Stephen Crane, Ernest Hemingway, and others, and he was considered an influential and feared literary critic. In recent decades, Bierce has gained wider respect as a fabulist and for his poetry. Most scholars believe that in December 1913, Bierce traveled to Chihuahua, Mexico to gain first-hand experience of the Mexican Revolution, where he disappeared and was rumored to be traveling with rebel troops. He was never seen again. However, some scholars recently have posited the theory that Bierce actually traveled to the Grand Canyon, where he committed suicide. An Inhabitant of Carcosa by Ambrose Bierce. For there be diverse sorts of death, some wherein the body remaineth, and in some it vanisheth quite away with the spirit. This commonly occurreth only in solitude, such is God's will, and, none seeing the end, we say the man is lost, or gone on a long journey, which indeed he hath. But sometimes it hath happened in sight of many, as abundant testimony showeth. In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this it hath been known to do while yet the body was in vigor for many years. Sometimes, as is veritably attested, it dieth with the body, but after a season is raised up again in that place where the body did decay. Pondering these words of Holly, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning, as one who, having an intimation, yet doubts if there be not something behind, other than that which he has discerned, I noted not whither I had strayed, until a sudden chill wind striking my face revived in me a sense of my surroundings. I observed with astonishment that everything seemed unfamiliar, On every side of me stretched a bleak and desolate expanse of plain, covered with a tall overgrowth of sere grass, which rustled and whistled in the autumn wind, with heaven knows what mysterious and disquieting suggestion. 
Protruded at long intervals above it stood strangely shaped and somber colored rocks, which seemed to have an understanding with one another and to exchange looks of uncomfortable significance, as if they had reared their heads to watch the issue of some foreseen event. A few blasted trees here and there appeared as leaders in this malevolent conspiracy of silent expectation. The day, I thought, must be far advanced, though the sun was invisible, and, although sensible that the air was raw and chill, my consciousness of that fact was rather mental than physical. I had no feeling of discomfort. Over all the dismal landscape, a canopy of low, lead-colored clouds hung like a visible curse. In all this, there was a menace and a portent, a hint of evil, an intimation of doom. Bird, beast, or insect, there was none. The wind sighed in the bare branches of the dead trees, and the gray grass bent to whisper its dread secret to the earth. But no other sound nor motion broke the awful repose of that dismal place. I observed in the herbage a number of weather-worn stones, evidently shaped with tools. They were broken, covered with moss and half-sunken in the earth. Some lay prostrate, some leaned at various angles, none was vertical. They were obviously headstones of graves, though the graves themselves no longer existed as either mounds or depressions. The years had leveled all. Scattered here and there, more massive blocks showed where some pompous tomb or ambitious monument had once flung its feeble defiance at oblivion. So old seemed these relics, these vestiges of vanity and memorials of affection and piety, so battered and worn and stained, so neglected, deserted, forgotten the place, that I could not help thinking myself the discoverer of the burial ground of a prehistoric race of men whose very name was long extinct. Filled with these reflections, I was for some time heedless of the sequence of my own experience. But soon, I thought, how came I hither? A moment's reflection seemed to make this all clear and explain at the same time, though in a disquieting way, the singular character with which my fancy had invested all that I saw or heard. I was ill. I remembered now that I had been prostrated by a sudden fever, and that my family had told me that, in my periods of delirium, I had constantly cried out for liberty and air, and had been held in bed to prevent my escape out of doors. Now I had eluded the vigilance of my attendants, and had wandered whither to... to where? I could not conjecture. Clearly, I was at a considerable distance from the city where I dwelt the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. No signs of human life were anywhere visible nor audible. No rising smoke, no watchdog's bark, no lowing of cattle, no shouts of children at play, nothing but that dismal burial place with its air of mystery and dread due to my own disordered brain. Was I not becoming again delirious, there beyond human aid? Was it not indeed all an illusion of my madness? I called aloud the names of my wives and sons, reaching out my hands in search of theirs, even as I walked among the crumbling stones and the withered grass. A noise behind me caused me to turn about. A wild animal, 
A lynx was approaching. The thought came to me. If I break down here in the desert, if the fever return and I fail, this beast will be at my throat. I sprang toward it, shouting. It trotted tranquilly by within a hand's breadth of me and disappeared behind a rock. A moment later, a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away. He was ascending the further slope of a low hill whose crest was hardly to be distinguished from the general level. His whole figure soon came into view against the background of a gray cloud. He was half-naked, half-clad in skins. His hair was unkempt, his beard long and ragged. In one hand he carried a bow and arrow. The other held a blazing torch with a long trail of black smoke. He walked slowly and with caution, as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. This strange apparition surprised, but did not alarm, and taking such a course as to intercept him, I met him almost face to face, accosting him with the familiar salutation, God keep you. He gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. Good stranger, I continued, I am ill and lost. Direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa. The man broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. An owl on the branch of a decayed tree hooted dismally and was answered by another in the distance. Looking upward, I saw through a sudden rift in the clouds Aldebaran and the Hades. In all this was a hint of night. The lynx, the man with the torch, the owl. Yet I saw... I saw even the stars in absence of the darkness. I saw, but was apparently not seen, nor heard. Under what awful spell did I exist? I seated myself at the root of a great tree, seriously to consider what it were best to do. That I was mad, I could no longer doubt, yet recognized a ground of doubt in the conviction. Of fever, I had no trace. I had, withal, a sense of exhilaration and vigor altogether unknown to me, a feeling of mental and physical exultation. My senses seemed all alert. I could feel the air as a ponderous substance. I could hear the silence. A great root of the giant tree against whose trunk I leaned as I sat held enclosed in its grasp a slab of stone, a part of which protruded into a recess formed by another root. The stone was thus partly protected from the weather, though greatly decomposed. Its edges were worn round, its corners eaten away, its surface deeply furrowed and scaled. Glittering particles of mica were visible in the earth about it, vestiges of its decomposition. This stone had apparently marked the grave out of which the tree had sprung ages ago. The tree's exacting roots had robbed the grave and made the stone a prisoner. A sudden wind pushed some dry leaves and twigs from the uppermost face of the stone. I saw the low-relief letters of an inscription and bent to read it. God in heaven! My name in full! The date of my birth! The date of my death! A level shaft of light illuminated the whole side of the tree as I sprang to my feet in terror. The sun was rising in the rosy east. 
I stood between the tree and his broad red disc. No shadow darkened the trunk. A chorus of howling wolves saluted the dawn. I saw them sitting on their haunches, singly and in groups, on the summits of irregular mounds and tumuli, filling a half of my desert prospect and extending to the horizon. And then I knew that these were ruins of the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. Such are the facts imparted to the medium Bayrolls by the spirit Hoseeb Elar Robardin. Well, this story was first published in the San Francisco newsletter of December 25th, 1886, and was later reprinted as part of Bierce's collection, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, and Can Such Things Be? This story has had a wide influence on literature and pop culture. Carcosa was subsequently borrowed by Robert Chambers as the setting of his fictional play, The King in Yellow, and features heavily in many of the stories in the book of the same name. Alluding to The King in Yellow, Carcosa was mentioned in the 2014 TV series True Detective. The fictional ancient African empire, Kokarsa, used by Philip Jose Farmer in his prehistoric fantasy novels, Hayden of Ancient Opar, Flight of Opar, and the Song of Kwasan, the Kokarsa series, was also inspired by the story. An inhabitant of Carcosa was included in the anthology The Fantasy Hall of Fame, 1983, compiled by Robert Silverberg and Martin H. Greenberg from stories selected by members of the World Fantasy Convention in 1981 and 1982. Hackneyed named their last album Inhabitants of Carcosa in 2015. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, 1890-1937, was an American writer who achieved posthumous fame through his influential works of horror fiction. He is probably one of the most influential writers in the genres of weird fiction and horror fiction. Now, anybody who's listened to this podcast will recognize Lovecraft as a regular presence on this podcast, and in fact, he was one of the influences to get this podcast going. One thing we should mention about H.P. Lovecraft is that he was, for lack of a better phrase, cartoonishly racist. This segment from Wikipedia, titled Race, Ethnicity, and Class, race is the most controversial aspect of Lovecraft's legacy. Expressed in many disparaging remarks against the various non-Anglo-Saxon races and cultures in his work, as he grew older, his original Anglo-Saxon racial worldview softened into a classism or elitism which regarded the superior race to include all those self-ennobled through high culture. From the start, Lovecraft did not hold all white people in uniform high regard, but rather esteemed the English people and those of English descent. He praised non-WASP groups such as Hispanics and Jews. However, his private writings on groups such as Irish Catholics, German immigrants, and African Americans were consistently negative. Some have interpreted his racial attitude as being more cultural than brutally biological. 
Lovecraft showed sympathy to those who adopted Western culture, even to the extent of marrying a Jewish woman whom he viewed as well-assimilated, and who, by all accounts, he was absolutely devoted to. While Lovecraft's racial attitude has been seen as directly influenced by the society of his day, especially the New England society he grew up in, his racism appeared stronger than the general popular viewpoint. And unfortunately, we will catch a little glimpse of that racism in this story. Polaris by H.P. Lovecraft into the north window of my chamber glows the pole star with uncanny light. All through the long hellish hours of blackness it shines there, and in the autumn of the year when the winds from the north curse and whine, and the red leaves of the swamp mutter things to one another in the small hours of the morning under the horned waning moon, I sit by the casement and watch that star. Down from the heights reels the glittering Cassiopeia as the hours wear on, while Charles's wain lumbers up from behind the vapor-soaked swamp trees that sway in the night wind. Just before dawn, Arcturus winks ruddily from above the cemetery on the low hillock, and Coma Berenices shimmers weirdly afar off in the mysterious east. But still the pole star leers down from the same place in the black vault winking hideously like an insane watching eye which strives to convey some strange message yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey sometimes when it is cloudy i can sleep well do i remember the night of the great aurora when over the swamp played the shocking coruscations of the demon light after the beams came clouds and then I slept. And it was under a horned, waning moon that I saw the city for the first time. Still and somnolent did I lie, on a strange plateau in a hollow betwixt strange peaks. Of ghastly marble were its walls and its towers, its columns, domes, and pavements. In the marble streets were marble pillars, the upper parts of which were carven into the images of grave-bearded men. The air was warm and stirred not, and overhead, scarce ten degrees from the zenith, glowed that watching pole star. Long did I gaze on the city, but the day came not. When the red alderbaron, which blinked low in the sky but never set, had crawled a quarter of the way around the horizon, I saw light and motion in the houses and the streets. Forms, strangely robed, but at once noble and familiar, walked abroad, and under the horned, waning moon men talked wisdom in a tongue which I understood, though it was unlike any language I had ever known. And when the red alderbaron had crawled more than halfway around the horizon, there were again darkness and silence. When I awakened, I was not as I had been. Upon my memory was graven the vision of the city, and within my soul had arisen another and vaguer recollection of whose nature I was not then certain. Thereafter, on the cloudy nights when I could sleep, I saw the city often, 
sometimes under that horned, waning moon, and sometimes under the hot, yellow rays of a sun which did not set, but which wheeled low around the horizon, and on the clear nights the pole star leered as never before. Gradually I came to wonder what might be my place in that city on the strange plateau betwixt strange peaks. At first, content to view the scene as an all-observant, uncorporeal presence, I now desired to define my relation to it, and to speak my mind amongst the grave men who conversed each day in the public squares. I said to myself, This is no dream, for by which means can I prove the greater reality of that other life in the house of stone and brick south of the sinister swamp and the cemetery on the low hillock, where the pole star peers into my north window each night? One night, as I listened to the discourse in the large square containing many statues, I felt a change and perceived that I was at last a bodily form. Nor was I a stranger in the streets of Oletho, which lies on the plateau of Sarkis, betwixt the peaks of Norton and Cadaponic. It was my friend Elos who spoke, and his speech was one that pleased my soul, for it was the speech of a true man and patriot. That night had the news come of Dicos's fall, and of the advance of the Inutos, squat, hellish, yellow fiends who five years ago had appeared out of the unknown west to ravage the confines of our kingdom and finally to besiege our towns. Having taken the fortified places at the foot of the mountains, their way now lay open to the plateau, unless every citizen could resist with the strength of ten men. For the squat creatures were mighty in the arts of war, and knew not the scruples of honor which held back our tall, gray-eyed men of Lomar from ruthless conquest. Elos, my friend, was commander of all the forces of the plateau, and in him lay the last hope of our country. On this occasion he spoke of the perils to be faced, and exhorted the men of Oletho, bravest of the Lomarians, to sustain the traditions of their ancestors, who, when forced to move southward from Zabna before the advance of the great ice sheet, even as our descendants must some day flee from the land of Lomar, valiantly and victoriously swept aside the hairy, long-armed cannibal Nopkes that stood in their way. To me, Alos denied a warrior's part, for I was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardships. But my eyes were the keenest in the cities, despite the long hours I gave each day to the study of the Nicotic manuscripts and the wisdom of the Zoberian fathers. So my friend, desiring not to doom me to inaction, rewarded me with that duty which was second to nothing in importance. To the watchtower of Thapnon he sent me, there to serve as the eyes of our army. Should the Inutos attempt to gain the citadel by the narrow pass behind the peak Norton, and thereby surprise the garrison, I was to give the signal of fire which would warn the waiting soldiers and save the town from immediate disaster. Alone I mounted the tower, for every man of stout body was needed in the passes below. 
My brain was sore dazed with excitement and fatigue, for I had not slept in many days. Yet was my purpose firm, for I loved my native land of Lomar, and the marble city of Oletho, which lies betwixt the peaks of Norton and Cataponic. But as I stood in the tower's topmost chamber, I beheld the horned waning moon, red and sinister, quivering through the vapors that hovered over the distant valley of Banoff, and through an opening in the roof glittered the pale pole star, fluttering as if alive, and leering like a fiend and tempter. Methought its spirit whispered evil counsel, soothing me to traitorous somnolence with a damnable rhythmical promise which it repeated over and over. Slumber, watcher, till the spheres, six and twenty thousand years, have revolved and I return to the spot where now I burn. Other stars anon shall rise to axis of the skies, stars that soothe and stars that bless with a sweet forgetfulness. Only when my round is o'er shall the past disturb thy door. Vainly did I struggle with my drowsiness, seeking to connect these strange words with some lore of the skies which I had learned from the narcotic manuscripts. My head, heavy and reeling, drooped to my breast, and when next I looked up, it was in a dream, with the pole star grinning at me through a window from over the horrible swaying trees of a dream swamp, and I am still dreaming. In my shame and despair, I sometimes scream frantically, begging the dream creatures around me to waken me ere the Inotos steal up the pass behind the peak Norton and take the citadel by surprise. But these creatures are demons, for they laugh at me and tell me I am not dreaming. They mock me whilst I sleep, and whilst the squat yellow foe may be creeping upon us. I have failed in my duty and betrayed the marble city of Oletho. I have proven false to Elos, my friend and commander. But still these shadows of my dream deride me. They say there is no land of Lomar, save in my nocturnal imaginings, that in those realms where the pole star shines high and red Aldebaran crawls low around the horizon, there has been naught save ice and snow for thousands of years, and never a man save squat yellow creatures blighted by the cold whom they call Esquimo. As I writhe in my guilty agony, frantic to save the city whose peril every moment grows, and vainly striving to shake off this unnatural dream of a house of stone and brick south of a sinister swamp and a cemetery on a low hillock. The pole star, evil and monstrous, leers down from the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some strange message yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. The story was written in 1918 and first published in the December 1920 issue of the amateur journal The Philosopher. 
Critic William Fulwer writes that Polaris is one of Lovecraft's most autobiographical stories, reflecting his feelings of guilt, frustration, and uselessness during World War I. Like the narrator, Lovecraft was denied a warrior's part, for he was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardships. Like many Lovecraft stories, Polaris was in part inspired by a dream which he described in a letter. Several nights ago, I had a strange dream of a strange city, a city of many palaces and gilded domes, lying in a hollow betwixt ranges of gray, horrible hills. I was, as I said, aware of this city visually. I was in it and around it, but certainly I had no corporeal existence. Lovecraft remarked on the peculiar similarity of the story's style to that of Lord Dunsany, whose work he would not read for another year. An H.P. Lovecraft encyclopedia suggests that Lovecraft and Dunsany were both influenced by the poems of Edgar Allan Poe. Polaris was first published in the December 1920 edition of The Philosopher, an amateur journal. It was later reprinted in the May 1926 edition of The National Amateur, the February 1934 issue of Fantasy Fan, and the December 1937 issue of Weird Tales. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the stories for this episode. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygonetales at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast, or you can find us on our website at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Bygone Tales. Each episode has its own page and comment section, so feel free to stop by and leave a comment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider stopping by iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher and leaving us a five-star review. For those of you who are listening to us on Stitcher, uh, I have been made aware that sometimes our episodes are not coming up promptly. I'm doing what I can to remedy this situation, but it seems to be out of my control. Thank you again for listening to us this evening, and until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.